0: Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great.
1: The flavour industry is kind of enigmatic and people don't often know about it before they're in it. Can you give us some insights into how you found yourself in the flavor industry?
2: Yeah, um, you're right. It is. It, it, it was pretty hidden from me when I first graduated. Um, I, I I graduated in biochemistry in oh, when was that? Uh, 1984. Um, and and I went I went straight into a job that was in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it was, it was something I was interested in basically pharmaceuticals, medicinal chemistry. And, and I started working on medicines and, and we, we used flavor houses. We were visited by flavor houses um, regularly because the, the kind of products I was working on were, were often flavored. They were things like cough mixtures and lozenges and things like that. And. Yeah, we we were we were visited by these guys who who were re- representing companies that I knew nothing about. Um, I was working as a formulation scientist, sci- <clears throat> scientist developing developing products, and they were helping us with the flavors. Usually, the aim was to cover up the taste of nasty tasting actives, so it was, a, it was more of a masking exercise. But obviously, you had to make the things taste taste appealing too. And and I became aware of these guys back in the lab. These companies working on these products, it just sounded so much more interesting than what I was actually doing. You know, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it just sounded creative, a lot of fun. In fact, chemistry only really came alive for me, I think, when I started understanding how m- molecules could have this kind of sensory sensory effect yeah just extraordinary how you could look at one chemical and it might have been something you'd seen in an organic chemistry textbook and it didn't really mean much until you smelt it and then it really really came alive and if it smelt of something like roses or vanilla it was it it just was so much more interesting for me i I wasn't really a natural chemist i think i i I was more interested in the um in, in the just the kind of life side of it really you know i would never have gone into being a polymer chemist put it that way but i I loved the idea of uh, of food and and the chemistry behind uh, why things tasted the way they did so that's how i I kind of learned about the industry just because it was i I started in an an affiliated industry i mean and and it it just sounded like so much more (laughs) interesting than what i was doing which which was so slow as well I, i found the pharmaceutical industry to be um to be interesting, but just incredibly slow. And I just didn't really have the patience for it.
1: They, they need to have a, a lot more checks and balances. Um, and I guess uh, those checks and balances are true or flavors that go into pharmaceuticals too. But it's interesting that you say the biochemistry route going in, because obviously biochemistry is the reason that these volatiles kind of exist in the first place. Like that's the way they're generated in nature. So no, I think that's it's a super interesting thing where you, kind of see this tangential industry that you think is more exciting so yeah, I
2: think what sorry i was just going to say when i look back and and like at lectures and and school lessons i i got two really distinct memories that are both linked to that that sort of subject and the rest of my my um chemistry lessons and and biochemistry lectures i just just sort of m- meld into one but I, there's one particular one where I, um, an organic chemistry lecture. The guy was just talking about organic chemistry, organic synthesis, and he put up a chemical and he said, and this one smells of mown hay, new mown hay. And, yeah. and for some reason, I just can really vividly remember him saying that. It was so strange. And it was coumarin. Yeah, so he, awesome. he was describing and, and he had this on on a overhead projector as it was in those days. And yeah, it just, it just stuck in my mind. He didn't have anything to smell at that time so i had no idea really what he meant by new moon, hey mm. but it was but it was only later when i was in a laboratory and i smelt coumarin it it just came back if it, it came back to me and the, and the other lesson was right from back in uh, secondary school and when, when we had a in basic chemistry we just suddenly had a, a food science lecture for no apparent reason as far as i could tell <laughs> but, but we looked we looked into uh we, we we were looking into the formation of gluten so when when water was added to flour, it transformed into this weird gooey mess that had in, incredible elastic properties. And I just thought that was amazing as well. So that was sort of the food, food chemistry, food science side of things coming into into my uh, formative years. But as I say, it's just it's weird when I look back now that I still remember those and I don't really remember any of the other lessons.
0: Do you, do you remember esters at school?
2: Yeah that, abso- yeah, that was the
0: only yeah. thing I think that seemed to have an aroma, like per mm-hmm. se, really,
2: didn't it? Yep, yeah, for sure. Those the fruity smells that you got when you were making esters, and in fact, also actually, that's you know, I never went to be a particularly accomplished organic chemist, but I can remember ester formations and those sort of pathways, and and it's that chemistry that became very useful to me. A very simplistic. But just knowing that sort of basic reactions, those sort of, those hydrolytic
1: or. It kind of reminds me of like of aspirin, you know, so when you're working for the uh, like a pharmaceutical industry, you're working on aspirin and like salicylic acid and like a byproduct of salicylic acid would be.
2: The methyl salicylate.
1: Yeah. And well, that's massively interesting to know how all of these things are connected and how they they kind of form, but are also generated by the same um, biochemical pathways
2: yeah it is and you can hear about that you can hear about salicylic acid and methyl salicylate but until you smell methyl salicylate it yeah. it is it's not it doesn't really mean much or at least from, from my perspective but when mm. you smell it you think wow how is that how is that possible yeah and and it's amazing and i i still find it amazing i think can't believe that anybody could not find that interesting really you know if mm. you, it, i would as i'm sure everybody in the industry does at some point gets uh, gets asked to to talk to students and talk about the, the work of a flavorist and and I'm, I always try and get that across once I, I gave a, a very short talk on stem you know science uh, was it science technology, engineering and mathematics yeah a stem stem event and and I was given like five minutes to talk about flavors. so all I did was I took I think three or four chemicals in solution on, on smelling strips and one was f- one was phenol, yeah. one was uh, guaiacol, one was vanillin. and it was just looking at how, you know from a fairly simple uh, phenol back backbone you, you with small chemical modifications you the amazing difference in the smell Get, getting that that sensory message across to uh, students was a lot of fun Go,
0: going yeah. back to when you said you were in the pharmaceutical industry i'm not sure how what uh, particularly you were doing in terms of like lab work but there's probably flavor compounds you were producing as precursors but in the industry, you wouldn't think to smell something because you're in a laboratory. You don't want to stick your nose in things, really, Do you. I think that's the...
2: No, you don't. You're right. And, of course, you can't, generally speaking. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's rather frowned upon. <laughs> yeah,
1: but especially not these days. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you certainly can't be tasting them directly. So.
1: Yeah, well, I, I've read it, like, a few books on philosophy of science that happened quite long ago and, and how using our own senses as empirical evidence for different materials or different molecules. Actually tasting and smelling things was crucial, like in the early days of identifying new things. But I think it's probably in all of our favor that that is no longer the case. Thinking like, so let's, let's kind of stay on this tangent. I think it's really great. Can you give us a, like a, a kind of a brief synopsis of once you started in the flavor industry, uh, where you started and kind of how life progressed after that to where you are now.
2: Okay. So I first, w- when, when I got interested in the, in the industry itself, I started writing to, to a number of flavor companies to see if one of them would take me on as a trainee. It was basically that, that straightforward, you know, a direct approach. There, there, there were no advertised jobs for flavorists or trainee flavorists, hardly ever anyway. I think might have, I might have seen one in New Scientist in, in, in those years and how and how old were you what, like, what um, you so present? i would have been uh, about 22 something yeah about. yeah so I, I i was writing and i was getting quite a lot of people interested anyway because as i say in, in those days that the way it was done was that you just learned about it word of mouth and so that was really the the best approach There were you weren't applying to adverts and competing with other people you were you were making it happen yourself i think and i I got a couple of interviews. Then I had one interview with, with a company called PFW. And in those days, PFW was one of the the, the kind of global lead, uh, um, flavoring and fragrance, um, companies in the industry. And I went along for an interview and it went pretty well. I met a guy called Richard Clark, who i will probably come on to, if you ask me who are the key, key people in my trainee years. And he, yeah, he eventually we, I got a job there. They wanted me and but they couldn't get a vacancy for a while and and i had to sort of go away a bit disappointed but probably just a little under a year there they wrote back and said um it looks like we're on and and so i i joined and i really vividly remember my first day because it was it was the the day i made my first flavor um, on your first day on my first well, day i mean it pretty wasn't rapid really when i say i made it i was part of manufacturing I wouldn't say I created it put it that way it was somebody (laughs) else's somebody else's formula but what was really interesting about it was for me anyway that it was it was a butter flavor and I was working with with one of the flavorists Sharon Kiddle, who is still a member of the BSF and and is now located in in Seattle she took me through uh, making up a, a slurry for spray dry and so we made this butter emulsion and then we went down to the factory area and we ran the par- little pilot machine, ran the spray dry, got this butter flavor back, went, went upstairs back to the lab, tasted it, tasted good. And then we sent it to the customer the next day. And and that absolutely blew my mind because having come from the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. where things take years to to do any to be in any kind of position to send things out, yeah. we, we had made, made this flavor. And it had gone out the door mm-hmm. the next day. And it's just incredible. And, you know, as I said, I, I'm, I was never had never the most patient person. I never had the, the patience for R&D. why mm. I never wanted to do a PhD. I knew that it wouldn't work for me. And just this was like the opposite. <laughs> it was just so on the fly, so fast moving. I loved it. I really loved it's, it.
1: I think it's incredible. Like when you think back and how vividly you can actually remember that first day. Mm. And I don't know if there's many industries where you can actually remember that first day as you mentioned it's it's actually a pretty interesting delivery method because uh, many people will just assume that flavors are liquids and many are and spray drying is actually quite a technical aspect of flavoring so it's a flavor delivery could you explain kind of as easily as you can or layman's terms what is a spray dry
2: okay well so a spray dry is essentially a, a powder version of a of a flavoring and pretty much all flavorings are are at their heart liquid liquids at room temperature the the concentrates that form a flavoring are liquid state but if you want to use that flavoring in a in a an end use a food that requires a powder mix or some kind of dry system like a a snack seasoning or, or a cake mix you can't use those liquids. They they are they're just not usable. Um, you can't spread them around. And also, flavoring volat- flavoring materials are extremely volatile. As you know, they are very delicate ingredients. And so, what you need to do is encapsulate them to be able to use them in those dry those dry mixes. Encapsulating those liquid volatiles in in a matrix that protects them protects them through. Stability through the shelf life of the product itself protects them through some food processing as well. Uh, so it's yeah, it's a, basically a way of converting a liquid into a dry format.
1: Another thing that you that you mentioned is uh, that initial flavor was a butter flavor. Did it by any chance contain diacetyl?
2: <laughs> yeah, and probably quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> it was certainly very yellow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yes. And uh, well, things change over the years, don't they? As, as, you know, things we're able to use, things we, things that they, they you know, the, the regulatory position changes over the years. And also the consumer appeal of certain types of flavorings changes over the years. That's, that's one of the things which at the time it happens to a flavorist feels like a real pain you know it's uh have got to deal with this changing changing thing we've got to start over again with a lot of flavors we've been designing but actually i've learned i think over the over the years that um, each one of those things is, a, is an opportunity and it's one of the things that keep, keeps us busy and employed you know it uh if nothing changed we would just be probably recycling stuff but it, it enables us to take a fresh look at things and Ooh, i guess yeah. because that it's landscape
1: changes it it, mm. it actually we're we're constantly improving in terms of safety. So it's the, I guess the same reason as um, seatbelts weren't mandatory for a really long time until they realized that the seatbelts actually saved lives and legislation changed and people had to start wearing seatbelt, um, same as smoking, same as all of those things. Um, the landscape changes and we adapt in order to kind of improve and make things safer.
2: Yep. Yeah, so, indeed. So. And, and, uh, and certainly I remember Um, being in in my first few years as as a flavorist, I think probably being, when I look back at it, being fairly cavalier with some of these ingredients, you know, you you tend not not to take them too seriously because they smell nice.
0: What was your first day like, Stephen, with your nose? Like, what's it like going into this environment? You worked in the pharmaceutical industry, probably all clean and sparkly, and then you come into this lab and it's probably very potent, the smells. What's it like going Mm. into that environment?
2: Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming and you can't believe that people can be making judgments on, on aromas in that kind of environment. You, think, <laughs> how, how can you how can you smell anything? And it's probably quite a characteristic of, of flavor laboratories and flavor companies that there are places that just smell revolting, They're really, yeah. really strong. And there are clashes of different aromas from one lab to another. The worst place ever is uh, a QC um, retained sample place mm. because there you've just got you've got just got everything in one place and it yeah it, you get these residual odors you just can't help it and they it's it's incredibly potent so uh
0: yeah you have to adapt to smells i guess, in, in that environment you can't have too much of a weak stomach i take it to start with anyway
2: <laughs> no 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 but you, you know there's pluses as well there's you, you get to smell amazingly amazingly delicious smells too yeah
1: and get to create them i guess that's Mm -hmm. really good what is your i guess favorite method of creating a flavor when when people talk about well what is a flavorist actually maybe that's better to start with let's start with what what is a flavorist
2: Mm. gosh that's pretty existential question um a flavorist (laughs) from from that's it so
1: that's that's a weird thing like if you if you're thinking so it's an existential question but it's an existential question, where where, where um, saying what is an accountant wouldn't be, but it's it's equally it's a profession that um, people may or may not have heard of, and then when they have heard of it, they think okay that's a, a flavorist or other people would say a flavor chemist, but but what what it, what is that? That's
2: interesting I mean, to the, see what
1: your view is. Yeah,
2: I I um I think it's it's worth probably worth saying that there are different types of flavors, right? There's many, many different types. And that's important because different people bring different skills to that role. And, and, and you, you know, I know people who are extremely gifted chemists and, and maybe not the most creative in the classic sense of very artistic, very flamboyant, not, not, not in that way, but they're very effective flavors and there are others who, who really don't have a Great grounding in, in chemistry or, or related subjects, and they're still very good, effective, successful flavors. So, so the question, what is the flavor?s is quite broad, but generally speaking, you know, we're we're responsible for for designing, and I like I like, I do like to use that word design because I think it describes it, it describes it well. We design sensory materials that are used in food. And they, we used to think of them as a bit like fragrances for food in that they, they were top, very top note oriented, very, very much aroma, but that's not always the case. And, and uh, you know, more so these days, we're also looking at tastes that go with it. So, so all the, uh, the extra senses, but the flavorist is, is responsible for designing that and making, making things work, working with, I always like to work work with the customers directly. So for me, that was part of being a flavorist was, was the interaction with the customer, listening to what they want, trying to translate it into, into something in a little bottle or a powder, obviously. And, and yeah. it, you know, that was, that's part of the fun, but yeah. So it, it design, I, I really see it as a design role. And it, when I look back, it's one of those things that I, I felt I was missing in, in my first, my first career choice, which was the, you know, the karma industry. And I had as a child actually really wanted to, to do something artistic. But, and that was my favorite subject was, was art. But I, uh, I had a bit of a handicap in that I was colorblind, which made, <laughs> made it very difficult. But I, and I had a bit of an aptitude for chemistry. So, so I just sort of fell into that, that side of things. Um, when I look back at it now, I think probably if, if I'd had my time again or if, if I'd been born, now, I'd be probably going in, into a more of a like a web design type role or, or graphic design because they, when everything is computer based, you know, you've got the technical side of it uh, and you've got the creative side of it. I would have loved to have done that, too. But you know, it hasn't worked out too badly for me.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> As we know, or maybe people don't know, but people can be anosmic to certain chemicals and um, just certain molecules. Do you know of any that you are a anos- particularly nosmic to or general ones that people may be anosmic nosmic to? And but like what do you what do you think about that in terms of yeah. like having a, a different perspective of Yeah, um, it's,
2: it's it's a it's a fascinating subject. I I'm I don't know of any particular materials that I'm you know genuinely an osmic to. So I think I've been a bit lucky there. I know flavorists who who are aware they are certainly anosmic to one or two materials and, and they, they're aware of it. So they, you know, they make allowances for that, it, it's okay. And they get other people to taste things when, when it's relevant, but it, it hasn't been a major handicap to them. I think uh, Brian Granger, the, the late Brian Granger, who he, was, he reckoned he was anosmic to, I'm trying to think which one it was. It might've been hedione.
0: And that's in flavor as well,
2: yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, you know if you had had to pick my two favorite ingredients, one of them is hedione, and the other is Damacenone. Yeah, I'm an anesth. Yeah. Interesting, say so you can't smell Damascinone. It's it's a curi- I'm
0: completely <laughs> anesthemic awesome to be a dimethicon.
2: Yeah, but I I wonder that because it's one of those things that if you if you smell it on its own, it doesn't mm. smell particularly strong. Much like hedione, if you smell yeah. it out of context, it doesn't smell that potent but very, very small amounts of it will transform a flavor, really transform a flavor. And, and what's um, it used
0: for as a flavor just for other people? What What is that compound?
2: Which one? Beta, Beta-damasthina. Oh, beta-damaschina. oh yes. That? Oh, well, goodness me, it's it's pretty ubiquitous. It it features very heavily in in red fruits, and but it also pops up in places that you might not expect, like uh, coffee. Okay,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, so it's a... It's a really interesting, and actually it's, it's affecting coffee I find fascinating because it's one of those, in my view, it's one of those materials that undermines the importance of aroma extract dilution analysis mm-hmm. because, it, because it, or at least as a, as the cure-all that people thought it was when it was first developed as a technique, because damascinone is one of those things that you can keep diluting a sample over and over and over and over again, and you can still smell it. On a, yeah on a gco test yeah mm-hmm. but and and so it always gets a very very high value yeah. in in that kind of test but actually then when you if you try and reconstruct that flavor and you use it at the level that it's in the food stuff it's not really contributing an, an enormous amount mm. and with coffee and coffee's an interesting example you know it will show up in in coffee analysis as being a very key component but you can have a very good coffee flavor without using that ingredient can we go back one
1: stage uh, back to what you were talking about i think you mentioned gc gco mm. so uh, gas chromatography can we talk about that just quickly briefly as a, a an analytical tool that you use because i think a lot of people will think well if you can tell exactly what's in something then you just put those things that the analysis tells you to put back together in that ratio. And then Bob's your uncle, you've got a flavor.
2: Yeah. Well, we know, we know that's not the case. GCO as a technique is uh, it, it's good. And it, I, I've, I've always enjoyed doing it. It's tiring actually, yeah. strange, strangely tiring doing because you you have to sit in one place and you concentrating very hard on, on the smell that will be, the aroma that's coming out of a very small port for possibly an hour or more and and that's actually really hard to do because you, 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 to do that you've got to keep repeatedly inhaling very yeah. small amounts and you get a you get a sore nose doing that and if you just do deep breaths you that doesn't work either because you just don't seem to sense it properly that way so you have to do very very short inhales repeatedly for a long time and it, it is quite fatiguing and you have but, to write down at the same time what you're smelling. Is that the case? Yeah. Well, that depends on your setup. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've experienced some different types of setups, one where you record your voice. So you actually, start, yeah. um, that works well. I had one where you um, had a dial and, and you just, it was a kind of random scale. So you just turn the dial up as the smell got stronger and stronger and then and turn it oh, down. Yeah. Like it. So you became your own sort of detector. Uh, that, that was fun so yeah different different setups but it's it's a good technique i've i've certainly i found it useful in some cases i think it's an important technique if you're doing fundamental research you're trying to understand you know why does something taste the way it does compositional analysis that's fine but it's limited by the detection obviously of the equipment and and then you we all know that nothing is as sensitive as the nose so so it makes a lot of sense to put your to put yourself at the end of the machine and and smell what's coming off and you know I, I i have several examples where i've found things that way that i wouldn't have found in any other way i had a I, I, and i still do you know even a few years ago i was working on a um like an aged rum flavor the flavor of an, a particular aged rum mm-hmm. and and it, it was going okay i was wasn't i wouldn't have said it was the greatest flavor but i did opt to do gco work on it and i and i located as a smell, which for me, an odor was totally out of context, really strange. I wasn't expecting it at all, but actually once I knew about it, it made sense from a compositional point of view. And then I tried that. I couldn't see it in, in the actual analysis, but I just assumed it would be because you look at the, where it comes off on the GC and you look at retention data. Retention. And think, well, Okay. It could, because I recognize that flavor from something else, recognize that component and it matches something in your, your library and mm-hmm. you it's a fairly good bet that that's what it is or something close so i tried that and and it just amazingly transformed the flavor so it was one of those you don't get them too often yeah. in in, uh, in the real world true, but, yeah. but one of those uh, examples where it really um, it really showed me the value of something like that
0: I, I think it's one of these techniques that are very interesting and it's it's really um stood the test of time i mean i remember reading somewhere that GC-olfactometry has been going on for many, many years before mass specs were even a thing. I believe um, chemists were actually smelling the end of GCs to actually detect before mass specs were a thing. I, I've read that. I'm not sure if that's
1: yeah. That's that's what kind of what I was mentioning yeah. before.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. that would be in the old back. old days of pack columns where there's probably quite a lot of stuff coming off. That uh, yeah, exactly. Like styrene, not, not, not a healthy thing to be doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: No, so we meant, we're, we're kind of talking around this uh, GC olfactometry and what we mentioned before was odor activity values, so through uh, dilution analysis, um, and I guess what you're saying, what you were saying in, in terms of like the value in GCO is that you're smelling these things as they elute from the column individually at a specific time related to its retention in this, yeah, so when, how volatile it is or when those things come off, so it's, it's kind of like separating the the entire smell into its separate components, and you smell them individually on their own. So yeah, you don't-
2: you're also smelling them at the right level, if effectively, because they are yeah. they are in the level that they are in your sample, which one assumes is is a representative sample of what it is you're you're analyzing. And so, it, it makes sense that not only is the the character of that going to going to be at right or more likely to be right at that kind of level, it, it just you know that if you're smelling it in that, in that situation, it will most likely be quite important. Yeah, 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 for sure. The only, the only <laughs> thing it does miss though, is of course it totally misses synergy. Yeah. Because yeah. You, you split up your ingredients and, uh, uh, and so you have no synergistic effect at all. And, and, and as we all know, that's a key part of our, of our work, is understanding the synergies, how things, how things go together and come up with something really interesting
1: and kind of how things boost other things as well. It kind of gets me thinking about maybe if they were to use GCO slightly more in the pharma industry and focus on marker chemicals. So uh, volatile markers of maybe other molecules that have a a biochemical effect in humans. Um, I don't know if, if many people have done that or if that would be worthwhile, but I think that could be, that could be a, a cool idea because they do detailed analysis, but maybe rely slightly heavily on the analytical tools that they have and forget that they have seriously powerful tools in, in themselves.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, only the, the problem with uh, pharmaceutical industry research is that it's, you know, you're working with things that could be potentially extremely toxic. So yeah. So it's mm-hmm. a different, uh, slightly as different a, safety requirement.
0: As, <laughs> a, as a flavorist using GCO factometry, like, how trained do you need to be as a flavorist? You know, how much do you need to recognise compounds and train with them to be able to do GC or spectrometry? Do you have to have a lot of training before you can do something like GC sniffing?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure how you could ever do it without. Yeah, without having um, your own internal memory library of, of aroma chemicals, and you know that's that's a key part of a flavorist training. It's why it's why I think it really. You know, we, we always used to say, as a rule of thumb, it took 10 years to become a, a senior flavorist. And over, over the years, we've tried to accelerate that. Uh, there's, there's been you know trainee programs developed to try and accelerate that process. But at the end of the day, you, you really, really need to be just generally exposed to, to these smells in the context that, that they are used. So actually, in project work, um, as you're compounding flavors, me there's absolutely no substitute for compounding flavors, making the flavor and as you're doing it you're smelling these things not only individually but in the composition as it's evolving as you're building that composition you're smelling the effect it has on that and and that's really really important because without knowing it you're building up that internal library and you couldn't necessarily even name it you're just aware of it and so so sometimes what in the in the future you you will you'll be tasting something and you'll be trying to understand how that nuance or how that note is arrived at and you'll spot you will literally spot you'll recognize something that you've smelt in the past well that yeah and it'll remind you of how something combined with something else and it came up with this interesting aroma and it really helps you know it helps you pick it apart that's yeah, why that's why I'm always um I think it's amazing that uh, I think wine tasters do an incredible job. You know, real wine experts who are able to pick apart the nuances in a in a flavour of wine, yeah, um, in, in very very high detail. They have never had the chance or the luxury to experience those notes out of context like we have.
0: Apart from like TCA and all these types of tints,
2: yeah. Aha. Apart so- from really specific, very specific occasions, but but they have never had the chance to to smell linolol on its own, yeah, or, yeah. or in combination with sulfur materials or whatever, you know, so, but they will pick up those notes and be able to describe them reliably, mm-hmm. um, and, and discriminate and differentiate. And, and, uh, and I think that's fascinating. In fact, I, I really like, I enjoy talking to wine experts. And, you know, we have a kind of, we talk opposite languages, but we, but we're yeah. talking about the same thing, you know, when I talk to them about, terpenes I'm talking about something different to what they're talking about and uh, yeah everyone loves you know, terpenes
0: in a different sense don't they yeah <laughs> it's, it's um
2: but it's it's but it's fascinating you know and they of course they tend to really love hearing about these molecules that like the sulfur molecules in um Sauvignon Blanc that ca- characterize that uh, tropical yeah characteristics that those are we we see them in a completely different way to the way they see them but it's yeah, so, interesting to both of us.
0: So, as a as a flavorist, are you a good wine taster? I guess that's the question. Do you see things chemically, or can you have an overall good way of describing flavors?
2: What's yeah, the I think um, that's we're we're all guilty of that. We, we <laughs> do see things, but I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that although I I do see things analytically like that, there's plenty of times when I just don't do that, and I'm just yeah. You can't enjoy food. Eat something very quickly because I'm hungry, and uh, you know <laughs> I'm not one of these people that picks apart every flavor and looks for every nuance every time You're I
0: they're all there
1: <laughs> yeah unless it, unless it's mine it's uh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's pretty quick and easy to pick it apart
2: yeah'm usually <laughs> looking for mistakes then <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay I think that was really
1: cool like that's given us an awesome background and things that we can maybe revisit in a bit well let's let's think about what we, where we're going from here so after maybe having a, a little bit of a break, I'd really, really like to talk to you about your time with the BSF, how, how you got involved with the BSF, what the BSF has, has done and what things that you remember from the past and where maybe you think the BSF is going. But before we do that, Aidan, would you like to give us a little riff or um, freestyle a bit? Uh, Stephen, are you ready to to crack on? Yep. Awesome. So you've been in the BSF for quite a long time. Can you give me a brief rundown of how you got into the BSF?
2: Sure. So, uh, yeah, you're right. 35 years, I think it must be now. So I was introduced by uh, Dr. Richard Clark, who I mentioned earlier, who was the manager of the Creation Lab where I, I first started in PFW. And he... He took me. Well, he, he he took me along to the to meeting, to the first couple of meetings. He um, introduced me to a number of uh, a number of people in the in the group that um, that I've come to know since. As you know, I've met them in later in life. Interestingly enough, that I, you know, people like Danny Kite, who I, I met first in a it was an after lecture um, get together, I think, and I just met him. Once he struck me as being a you know, really, really nice guy, worked for a different company to me. So it was the first sort of exposure I had to to people in the industry, but not within the company that I was working for. And and it was nice to meet him. And, and nice to meet him like decades later again, when, when I got involved with the BSF, which, which we'll come on to. But I found those early, early meetings that I went to with the society absolutely fantastic. They were So in those days, we would have lectures in the um, lecture theatre in Savile Row in London. And it was, I can't remember how often we did it, maybe every couple of months or something like that. It was always done in London. So it was difficult for some people around the country to get to. That was a little bit of a shame. But for me, I I worked in Northwest London. PFW was in Perivale in Northwest London. And I was able to get a train in and meet up with with these guys and we would have a lecture and it could be on it was all sorts of things i remember actually one of them was a wine society lecture uh but there there were a lot of interesting technical lectures and then we would retire afterwards to the pub and that was the that was the thing you've probably heard of this many times from from the old bsf crew that they talk about burlington berties which was the pub just down the road from the lecture theater we would all meet there after the lecture and uh yeah have a chat and have a drink and then possibly go on for a meal afterwards with small groups it was just a good social thing and and i really i really enjoyed the 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 society at that stage i had no no real particular interest in getting involved in it and it's it's interesting that because the bsf i think to younger people has often been seen as a a bit of a club for for the old guys and you know certainly when I, when, it, when I was a young flavorist, it felt a bit like that. And, and every, whenever I saw these AGMs, you know, people turning up for AGMs, it was a bit of a turnoff for me, if I was honest. I was not interested in that sort of thing. I had no interest in being, being in the committees. It just didn't look particularly interesting. The lectures were great and the social side of it was good, but the actual society side of it, I wasn't that uh, that interested in. And, and years went by, you know, um, and I would just go to these lectures from time to time, and and it was it was uh, useful and interesting. But then a few years ago, I think two thousand fourteen, um, so not that long ago. Um, Brian Granger, the late Brian Granger, who was at that time president, I think. Yeah, he he was working for IFF, same same company I worked for, and and he suggested to me that I might like to. Get involved with the society from a you know, from a committee point of view, from the council point of view, and and I thought actually the only thing that I would be remotely useful to the society as would be the administrative side, that the, the um, putting together the, the memberships, keeping the membership running, all that side of it. And I I really, I was not interested in organizing events. In fact, that's a bit of my worst nightmare is organizing events. I I just hate doing that sort of thing. But I don't mind putting together a spreadsheet or whatever it takes to to organize the membership. So I said yes, and uh, there was nobody else who was interested at that time. And I found myself on on the council. And that's where I met you, Trevor.
1: Exactly. yeah. Yeah. So if we go back ever so slightly to, like, well, back in time a bit, um when you're talking about the Burlington Bertie and it's something that we have in our industry which i think is fascinating and obviously it's not open to every everyone or lots of people but the BSF as an organization it offers something very strange in that we talk directly with our competition so mm-hmm. when you're going to these lectures and things in the past you're interacting not necessarily on a professional basis or not at all on a professional basis but you're talking to your direct competition who most probably were working on similar or the same projects as you were. So in direct competition commercially, how, how did that go? Like that's a, it's a weird thing. And it would be a weird thing for people maybe listening to this to think of like a, a Pepsi or, and Coca-Cola representative talking together at the same lecture and afterwards having a beer and having a
2: catch up. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It is a bit, a bit strange, but you know, it's a reflection of, that it's a very small industry in in um in the scheme of things it's it's tiny and you you will get to you will get to know the the the, comp- the people that you you're competing against and you can't help it really that there will be times when you will meet and and it it just feels like a, a nice thing to to do to to meet your opposite number it doesn't feel like you're you're on edge you're having to be guarded it just feels fairly friendly or it should do in my view i think it you know it yeah. can be can be a, a nice uh, uh, social interaction it doesn't have to be you know trying to, yeah. trying to yeah or trying to pry in and find out secrets and it, that it never ever felt like that
1: so you right. ask how it
2: went i think it went very well it was just a it was just um a friendly meeting and 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 interesting you know it's it's interesting to engage with people to see what they look like to, to meet them, yeah, to understand yeah. what makes them tick and n- nothing more than that really I think yeah,
1: and I guess it's it's also interesting to meet like-minded people in this industry that is so small it's it's really small in terms of number of people you know there's not many places for a flavorist, and I guess that's why lots of people end up in the industry kind of by accident or um, through these different connections with other industries that are slightly associated. So that's, that's really, really cool. One of, through your talk, which is really cool, through this interview, you've spoken about people that I know are, they're not really late and great, they are just great, but people who have really changed my view of the industry. And it, it kind of begs the question of who are your, who were or who are your idols? and like who are those people that you looked up to but those people that kind of guided you on your career and uh kind of taught you what it was to be a flavorist
2: mm. well the first the first person one of the people that actually was responsible for me getting interested in the industry was a gentleman named ken hassey who was a flavorist very very accomplished flavorist working for Firmenich at the time i first met him and he when i was at the in the pharmaceutical industry he visited me as the technical rep, if you like, for for Furmanish, and he was working on projects for uh, the company that I was working for at the time, which was called Beechams. Then it's now GSK. And they, I, I found him fascinating guy. You know, he was really he lo- he. You could see he loved his job. He was really passionate about about what he did. He was funny, entertaining, um, lively, very sort of uh, ebullient. Um, Kind of guy just just jolly and and i, I enjoyed his company and you could see that it, you know it showed me that that sort of role could be for me you know i, I really liked what he, the way he conducted himself and, and and his approach and
1: do you think do you think that's a maybe his his jolliness was um as a result of him being a pro- professional solvent abuser <laughs>
2: i don't think so no i think he (laughs) he 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 was a naturally you know a naturally sort of cheerful guy yeah and and uh you know flavor flavor account managers tend to be that that that, that's how they that's how they get into the into the industry but he wasn't an account manager as such he was a flavorist and so he was doing essentially both jobs he was was coming in and talking, presenting his work, and doing the sales part as well, which is was unusual. Um, It's even more unusual now. Um, But I guess in a way,
1: in a way that's it's kind of how the art an artist might go to their exhibition and explain why they uh, painted something, like what it means to them and what yeah give you slightly a deeper meaning of like why this is the greatest thing someone's ever experienced.
2: Well, I I you know I I loved. I still love visiting customers to explain how you, how and why you put a flavouring together the way you you do it's it's yeah. it gives you that opportunity as you say to to talk about it to go through explain and in doing so bring it to life really yeah. really yeah. bring a flavour to life and anyway with with Ken he he just had that that knack and and it was great great to witness um he I was working on some horrendous things at the time I was working on on cod liver oil emulsions, disgusting things, <laughs> really, really disgusting. Never, ever drink cod liver oil emulsion. If you can, uh, if you can avoid it, I would. Anyway, th- so we were working on a, on a, a non cloudy emulsion. So back in the day, this was quite advanced uh, clear emulsions, um, micro emulsions of cod liver oil. And it doesn't matter how small you make the droplets, it still tastes of fish. <laughs> so it's <laughs> <this is> disgusting, <laughs> um, but we were giving him this base to work with and saying to, what's well, to the to all the um, people we were briefing at that time, we want you to make it taste of raspberry. <laughs> <laughs> and I look back at it now and I think, oh my god, you know how what were we thinking? But that was that was what marketing were telling us that they wanted. They wanted a raspberry flavored clear cod liver oil emulsion. Nice, and I, like, and, um... and, and, sorry, go. On
1: it's like a, a kind of a, a new version of molecular flavor pairing um <laughs> yeah so it's not, not this, successful
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it, anyway he, he um he he took one taste of that base when we get, gave him the base at the in the briefing meetings we did it quite formally briefing meeting and he, he tasted it and he said he said oh he's almost spattered out and he said i'm good but i'm not that good and, <laughs> and i know what he meant you know i could see it and I, I just loved i loved the way he, he he conducted that he he wasn't afraid to say that which yeah. is good i think i might be afraid to say that sometimes if i was in front yeah. of a customer but, you know, but he was uh he, he was bold and, and um ultimately yeah, managing expectations absolutely yeah <laughs> doing doing, doing, his, doing a good job yeah then, and then so, anyway going back to the people that that influenced me uh, most i think Ken got me into the industry, but I didn't really see him too much after that. And then it was really from then onwards, it was the, the team that I interacted with when I first joined PFW. So the, my manager there, Richard Clark, he, he was my mentor really for, the, for the, all the time I was with that group, which was 16 years. I was with that team. I worked for it, directly reported to Richard for 16 years. We went through various company morphings. PFW became Tastemaker, became Givardin. Through those those years, uh, I was still with the same, effectively the same group, which was um, actually an interesting thing to bring up because back in the day, it was pretty much conventional wisdom that flavorists needed to move around from company to company. It was the only way you could get exposed to different sets of, you know, different palettes of ingredients. Yeah. Um. It was, it really was the the only way you could do it. And so, and I was lucky. I felt very lucky because it was like, I didn't have to, it all came to me. Yeah. Every five or 10 years, there would be a, a company takeover. And suddenly I'd have a whole new set of things to, to see and and toys to play with. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it was very, really fortunate. Nowadays, I don't think that's so much the case. I think you, you know. You don't really need to do that there's other ways of advancing your knowledge of, uh, of the palettes, but it's back in the day what well, it, it was definitely the case
1: i was going to say well it just it, it raises it raises an interesting aspect of it in terms of like the the captive molecule so mm-hmm. the the tools that maybe you have depending on what company you work in that no one else has so in terms of uh, matching products or working on something together someone won't be able to use the same tools as you so in the art world or through history the best artists at the time had more colors or had a better bigger palette so that's yep. interesting
2: yep yeah meow you're right and it's all flavor houses will will be striving to make their flavors unmatchable in one way or another um, it's more difficult than it used to be but it's not impossible and there's it's interesting trying um, yeah because yeah. A clone flavor exists, but
0: I uh, sorry, a clone perfume. But a clone flavor—it's—it's it's, it's unusual to think about that. But of course, there must be forms of of that happening.
2: Yes, yes, it's a it, it's a fundamental part of our business. For flavorists, it can feel like a bit of a drag. You know, you you feel disappointed that you're you're matching somebody else's creation. You're trying to just copy rather than in design. The consumers all recognize the same flavors, don't they? Perhaps in a way. Maybe. The key thing I think about, about matching exercises from a flavors point of view is it's a great way of learning, mm. you know, it's a really good way of learning because you, you have to get very analytical. You have to look at, look at what makes a flavor tick, what, what really um, makes it work and often you have to, so you're discovering as well. So you're discovering things and ideas that maybe you didn't, you hadn't thought of yourself. So, so there's that, but also you, you, you have to find alternative solutions. Know, because sometimes you might not have things to your to hand that you 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 need to to recreate something else and you know I always used to I, I used to not particularly enjoy having being asked to work on matching other other than other person's flavor because it felt it didn't feel like a particularly nice thing to do but I did did find it a valuable exercise in terms of learning how to be a better flavorist
1: I think that's also that's also really interesting when you think of um, like Aiden just mentioned making a clone of something else, and it's it's not necessarily a clone because a customer who's buying a flavor is uh, is looking for you to do that for them for a particular reason. So if you can let's say match a flavor, you're, you're giving off the same perception. So you you're basically trying to create a flavor that gives the same effect. As someone else's but doing it in a different way so maybe not having the same materials as they have you're Mm -hmm. trying to think outside of the box and do it in a different way and i think maybe that might become more important in time to come with regards to just like climate change and making things stronger sometimes it's possible sometimes it's not possible to to make something in a a more cost effective way but potentially more more environmentally friendly way to I don't know what
0: you think about
1: that. <laughs> Maybe no, that's
0: uh, the part yeah. that we cut. <laughs> well, I, I, do, I do think it's interesting that you say like a flavor can create two basically same perceptive flavors, but using probably completely different materials. Is that that would probably likely happen, wouldn't it?
2: Well, yep. you are never you're in. almost never gonna get a hundred percent the same in terms of both the composition and, and the actual flavor. You can get something that maybe most consumers wouldn't notice the difference, and that, yeah. that's really what you're aiming for. Um, I guess we, that's what we, all, we all know that there's no such thing as a hundred percent match. No, and that's that's I
1: guess what it, exactly what happens when, like what we were talking about earlier, about when uh, we find out that that maybe one of the materials that we're using has uh, slightly more uh, restricted use levels. So you you're more restricted on use in order to make flavour safe. It seems kind of like sometimes the bane of our lives, but it's also fascinating to be able to do that.
2: Yeah, it is. It's a key. It's a key part of our skills, really. Skill set is to be able to do that. Is to identify different ways of creating the same or same or similar sensory effect. Yeah. Really, really important part because we over the years, as we said earlier the regulatory framework changes, we have to end up replacing things um, that we weren't expecting to, like perilla aldehyde, you know, recently was something that went off the list and it was used as a flavoring substance. You have to find different ways of of recreating that sort of note. It's a note that's in nature. So you want to get it, but you're not allowed to use it. So you have to find creative ways of, of achieving it. And would
0: a consumer who buys a product, it has perhaps been reformulated over the years through different regulatory restrictions. Does that have to say it's a new flavor or can you would, can that still be different? But do, do you get what I'm, I'm saying in that sense?
2: Yeah, you, you, I think you, what you're saying is, or asking is that, do you have to, the you have to yeah. inform, do you have to inform? You get immune and um, improved, don't consumers? you? But does that mean? Yeah, in- no, not necessarily. I mean, if, if you, what you would have to test it very thoroughly. You that's we do. A lot of that is, is testing whether a consumer can discriminate against mm-hmm. because most of the time it's for cost reduction reasons, but it could be for replacement reasons too, in, ingredient replacement
1: massively valuable to the people that will listen to this. It's given me an opportunity to also shout out someone else that you mentioned earlier. A past president as well, Danny Kite, who was very involved with the society, and someone who you met at the beginning of your career, who you met again uh, working on the council.
2: You know, he's one of the gentlemen of the industry, which, and I've met a lot of those. That's one of the really nice things about our industry is you, you will encounter some some really nice people, some decent people. uh, And
1: he actually he he worked with Ken Hassey too, so they knew. Yes, of of course. Yes,
2: yes, I'd forgotten that.
1: So uh, going back to um, your involvement with. The council. I know that you very much don't like to blow your own trumpet, even though I try and get you to as much as possible. Can you explain some of the kind of advances that you've uh, seen happen with the council, but also with the society in general since starting?
2: One of the things that frustrated me when when we when I first joined was that we were a little bit stuck in the dark ages when it came to IT and um, and and the way that we communicated to use technology to communicate to the members it was it was very old school it was uh using your own laptop with with email program on it that you hoped you had a big enough email list uh, and if somebody else wanted to send it to the same people you had to you had to copy the email list over to them and uh, and you also ran risk of not being able to send it because your service provider would bounce your emails and, and all this sort of thing. And the emails themselves were very uh, ordinary looking, very homespun, very um amateur. And I really wanted to improve that. So so one of the things I did was try and create something more central, a bit more like a like you might see when you get when you get emails from companies. They are they're very professionally laid out, okay? And and there's and that's not by accident and it's not simple either. There's a lot of work that goes into that a lot of technology because that email has to look right on all sorts of different programs all different devices so behind the scenes it's not a simple email it's more like a little website each each you know like a website page each email i tried to yeah i introduced that um and it also allowed us to get away from something which i was not a big fan of which was the uh the attachment let's call it the attachment (laughs) Okay. okay the flyer which was very old school, in my view, way of of advertising um, <clears throat> an event, uh, which was to create essentially an A4 document in a PDF um, format and then attach it to an email, and then send that out, and then you that was it, and you then people had to open the document, and it may or may not look particularly readable on their on their device, um, so it it just looked a bit old fashioned, and and I wanted to get us away from that and more into online. Um, so things looked good, or formatted to look good instantly on whatever device you were using. And you didn't have to open another program, so even the email itself could be the actual page. As I said, you know that would that would look good and have all the information you wanted. And if you wanted to dig deeper, you would click on a link and it would take you into. It. So it was really just bringing us forward into the into the internet age, which. Uh, you know, 2014 when I joined, we really should have been there, but we weren't. So, so that was <laughs> <laughs> that was my first job was to try and um, try and improve that side of things, and and yeah, and and just improve the whole online um, experience a bit.
1: How on earth did you find time, and <laughs> why did you find why did you think it was valuable to you to maybe learn some of these new skills, and what uh, kind of share it with the BSF?
2: Yeah, so it's it's. I didn't do it for the bsf put it, put it <laughs> I, I did it because it was a hobby really you know I, I i love it i enjoy doing it and so was able to to bring some of those things to the table so to speak but that's that's great you know that's the, one of the the good things about about our our council is that we try and try and involve people who who bring different things to the table who have different uh, different skills you know we need somebody who to act as a treasurer so we have to have somebody who knows how to, how to do finances, and, and I, haven't, I wouldn't have a clue how to do that. so no. and, and if you don't, if nobody has it, then we'll try and, I guess, teach or encourage somebody to learn about, about that particular area. Um, events management maybe not something that anybody uh, joins knowing, but you spend a bit of time with the BSF, and you learn all sorts of interesting and um, effective ways of doing that. Which you probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And as I said to you, Trevor, I think when we had a private conversation about this, you're getting, you're getting an experience of running a company without having the danger of running a company. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. safe way of learning how to run a, a, a sort of business, yeah, um, and, and learning the ins and outs of that uh, without too much risk. And, and you've got support from people who are not trying to steal your job or whatever. It's, it's a very it's a nice way of learning it's a very um, friendly way of learning these skills and uh and i know i rec i would always recommend it to people and it's so encouraging now to see the you know i look at i look at the council now and so many more younger faces um it's bigger it it it, it just has a a fresher younger look to it and and that's the way i was hoping it would go and it's great
1: how do you think that the BSF is going, and what does the future look like for the BSF and and the council? I guess, mm. in your opinion.
2: Well, um, as I say, I'm very very encouraged by the way it's going. Um, there was a time a few years ago where we we felt like we just weren't attracting enough people, and and, and it felt a little bit dispiriting. But the last couple of years, it's really come on, um, and a lot of that is to do with the way that we have marketed ourselves a, a bit, I think. Um, maybe not all that deliberately, but it, it just has happened, and partly to do with the website, partly to do with the, the fresher face that you that we're putting across with, with professional-looking emails, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But for whatever reason, we are attracting, it seems, people that um, are giving us a broader scope. And then you factor into that the effect of COVID, which has mm-hmm. been transformational for us. Uh, I know it's, it's an awful thing to to uh, to have to rely on something like that, but but what's happened, of course, is that we are now much more of a global... You know, it's certainly international organization. Um, mm-hmm. We had always had members in different countries, but we had no real effective way of reaching them beyond email. We would put on lectures. There's no way they could have attended those lectures. We toyed with the idea of of running webinars we we were reluctant to do it because I think we were a bit scared off by the enormity of setting something like that up and still looking professional we, you know we felt we were, we were scared of it looking really cra- crappy basically if we tried to run it yeah. and it not working very well we will have an international council we will have council from from all sorts of countries we we won't just be located in the UK it was we tried that before we had one or two people from Holland I think it was so hard for them to get involved in the meetings. It never really worked. Now it works. The meetings are better. We have a better AGM. The AGM works better this way than it used to do, trying to do it in person. So the whole, the whole council, I think, in my view anyway, is, is working better and the society is working better.
1: Have you lived in many countries?
2: <laughs> have I lived in many countries? I've only lived in two countries. Most of that was in the UK, uh, always in the south of England. <clears throat> I'm pleased no, I no, didn't no,
1: say that this was a quick quick fire round because <laughs> I should have asked a better question that wasn't so open. Did you live in Australia? <laughs> and then you can just say yes or no.
2: Yeah, okay, yes. Sorry. Was, <laughs> I, was there supposed, supposed to be one-word answer? Okay. No. Um, no. <laughs> well, I, had a, I just had the absolute privilege of, of taking part in a flavorist exchange back in 1990 and 91, um, where I was uh, literally swapped with a flavorist from PFW who worked in Sydney, and uh, I spent a year with my wife and I spent a year in Sydney you know, working there as a flavorist. It was just the most amazing experience. Um, really, really loved it. Fantastic.
1: If you think about like the like tropical fruits or the different foods that are available in different countries, it fully opens your eyes to like a completely different world. So those things can be so useful, kind of sharing and bringing different flavors, sensations to other people in different parts of the world
2: yeah totally i i I was in uh in a supermarket in in australia in sydney and walking along and i heard somebody they were walking past the fruit sort of greengrocer area and somebody could smell smelt mangoes and they said oh lovely smells like christmas (laughs) really (laughs) such a weird it was such a weird association but that's you know to them the smell of fresh mangoes is the seasonal smell of, of, of christmas time Whereas for yeah, us, yeah. in, well, at least for me, for me in the UK, it's more something like a, a Satsuma or. But is, so that was a totally different association. And you, you have to adapt to that when you're, when you're talking to these people. But the whole thing gave me lots of really interesting experiences. I had, you know, the, the flavorist there worked in a, in a different um, environment. There was only one flavorist. So he was called upon to do a lot of different things that uh, maybe I wouldn't have ordinarily exposed to. I, I once got into a trial where. We had a, a problem with a chocolate, fla- a chocolate flavor being added to chocolate and it was making the chocolate go hard. It was setting hard and, and we put ethanol in the flavor. You know, I went to see it being made and the guy would stand on top of a three ton uh, tank of molten chocolate being slowly stirred and he would tip a bucket full of the flavor on top of it. And it would just sit there for ages, slowly getting stirred in. And of course, that flavor containing a bit of ethanol would, would just create, you know, set up crystallization and, and it was a nightmare. So, so you, can't, you can't put anything that alcohol in, into molten chocolate. It just destroys the structure. To see that happen in real life was fascinating.
1: The, the different things that you kind of get exposed to in the world of flavors and being a flavorist is just like thermodynamics of food
2: flavor release and and the thermodynamics of the of a flavor system food system have always really fascinated me anyway right from early PFw days PFw is one of the companies that were pioneering research into flavor release <clears throat> and uh, partitioning that kind of thing and so i I was lucky enough to work with some of the the early pioneers in that in that field and
1: marker chemicals. Um- do you think are really important when you're looking at analysis and maybe trying to figure out what citrus oils to use, or things that would you would that would jump out of the page at you? To say, uh, this is this type of citrus oil, or this is this type of um, mm-hmm. essential natural oil.
2: You know, I always look straight away at the um, at the ratio of terpenes to to oxygenated compounds. So, you know, are you looking at uh, something that is is folded so has had terpenes removed. So I look at those kind of ratios. I look at um, sesquiterpenes particularly. I find I find the whole area of sesquiterpenes in citrus products really interesting because they're they're not partic they're not so well understood as all the other ones. They're more complex molecules. They are sometimes surprisingly potent. Um, you know something like Sinensal, and Sal, is a is a is, is a really strong component, but has very low volatility. It just wants to get out of the water, so it has it, it does have some potency. But when you look at its actual boiling point, it's it's really quite high. So it's not a it's not a volatile material particularly, but it is very intense. So you we perceive it strongly, and there are a number of things which we would look at if you, if you think in terms of a GC trace at the back end you tend to think the back end materials are heavy low volatility probably not so not so impactful but occasionally can be very impactful and and it uh, it can tell you by surprise so i just find that sort of thing interesting you know when it's when it's not what you expect then it's, it's interesting
1: yeah it's a, because it's something that reminds me of, of a lecture that we had before um that was um kind of focused on transport um so how, how do those molecules actually get to your olfactory receptors? How did they get there in the first place? When you're thinking about these things at the back end, it means that really they're less volatile. So they're mm. less likely to get to your receptor. But things like musks and uh, mm. fixatives in in uh, perfumery and things, those things can, can be really, really strong. Mm. And it's, it's difficult to see how those things are really strong because how did they get to your receptors? And it really reminds me of that conversation we had about why coins smell Mm. do you remember that can you yes yes recall
2: absolutely yeah absolutely i mean that's been um something that bothered me for years why does metal smell you know what what's that all about how 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 can metal be smelly having any smell when it's patently non-volatile and then I, i don't know a few years ago i remember stumbling across a an article which which described how really what you're smelling are breakdown products of the oils that you leave behind when you handle coins or whatever the metal is you you can't help but leave you know it's what fingerprints are made of i guess but but that sort of oil that, that comes from your skin not a very pleasant subject but it you can't help it there's always something left behind and the the metal will catalyze oxidation of those of those oils and you get some extremely potent compounds like um octinones that that are what we put together in our minds as the smell of metal even though they're not really good. And is that
0: used as a flavor how how would you incorporate yeah. that compound because if it's so associated with the smell of coins how how, how do you use it in, in a flavor sense does it make well, up certain foods
2: yeah there, absolutely there's, there's um a number of foods that that have that note not exactly the same but they have it as part of their overall picture like tea mm, is one yeah. octenone is, is, is quite a no sort of unsaturated ketones are quite important notes in in uh, black tea particularly anything that is based on the smell of like um, metallic like blood you know the savory yeah, notes that have that flavor. bloody yeah. bloody yeah. note to them you know they they have that sort of character as well so savory foods that, or meats that have that—it's amazing. Yeah. amazing. Yeah, And Aiden, Aiden your point about um, it, you know how, what would you use that in is good because it—it's it, key to a lot of our work. Is that these these components on their own they might have certain characteristics that you think where on earth would you use that? You know, it's very very strong in a certain direction, and you think how could that fit in flavors? But actually, it's a key part of the overall picture. It's a key color in that in that photograph you know it's actually um out of context it might be either objectionable or unrecognizable or whatever yeah but when you use it in the right way yeah uh it it transforms the flavor and that i think is pretty much encapsulates what i love about working Mm. with flavors because it you know it's that surprise it's that um feeling that you especially when you do it yourself you discover something new yeah that how how something that you weren't expecting to have any kind of use in a flavor really suddenly improves it
1: in isolation you see those things as not really having an impact or how you I think the question you asked was have you ever used this in in flavor like how could they possibly use this where could it it, it's so potent but it also smells so different that's it's really important to to know that all of these things in isolation aren't necessarily what they add to the whole. It's it's the same reason, I guess. Stephen, you probably know far more about this as well. It's like the weirdest places you found indoor.
2: Yeah, you think you smell that on its own, and it's it's really objectionable. Skatol is much worse. Skatol is you know really kind of fecal, but actually in low levels is great in butter, for example. The other thing about what we're talking about is is that it's very much to do with the level. Like you said, mm-hmm. methyl thiobutyrate is incredibly strong, sulfury, um, cabbagey smell, maybe. But in strawberries, it's either like overripe smell or just at the right level, it's of a nice ripe strawberry, as opposed to a really green, slightly underripe strawberry. So a little bit of methyl butyrate, methyl thiobutyrate, um, really makes that happen. And it's all about the level. And, and that's true of a lot of sulfur chemicals. Something like Prenama Captain is a, a chemical which at the right level in beer, it's it's lovely. It's really good. The brewers themselves, they they hate it and they think it smells of sunstruck beer. At super low levels, if you don't have it in a beer flavor, it doesn't really taste fully beer-like. So so it's one of those things that at a certain level it's good, and at a, at a higher level, it's off, it's an off note. It's a taint. One more fire
1: question what is your favorite cuisine and is it related to countries that you would love to
2: visit for food I think my favorite cuisine is Thai cuisine it, in some ways it, it almost brought food to life for me really when I discovered Thai cuisine because I I'd had growing up you know you, you have the had Chinese food we had obviously English food but but from an international point of view I wasn't exposed to a lot of different types of foods other than... Chinese and, and occasional Indian takeaways you know, very fairly not not particularly uh, wide uh, culinary experience when I was young but then when I got introduced to, to Thai cooking it was almost like I hadn't been eating food before this was real food it was just suddenly an explosion of flavors and I realized that um, food was so much more about these flavors really interesting flavors and, and I love the way that chefs refer to to ingredients as they add them as flavors because that that's what we do you know that is the key to it is making these really interesting characters work together in food and just making Mm. it more delicious i'm a bit of a reluctant cook compared to a lot of flavors i know a lot of flavors are very very keen keen chefs i enjoy it what i what i hate doing is following recipes you know i know lots of people who love to cook and they get a recipe book and they follow Mm. the recipe i just hate doing that i find it's almost like well i've done that all day at work and now I, I want to just play with whatever's in the cupboard so that cooking for me is that it's it's experimenting with what i can find and trying to make it work but when you're cooking for a, a single meal you can just you know, go mad and and that's that's what i that for me that's cooking i'm not enjoying following recipes
1: what's your favorite cocktail
2: that's easy negroni it's is just for me the best what does it have in it i'm actually quite intrigued it's equal parts uh gin a red vermouth and uh bitters like and a slice or some orange peel that right if you don't have the orange peel it's not so good
0: iron brew what's your thoughts on it what is the flavor like not the chemical constituents but what even is iron brew if you (laughs) had to sum it up in like it's it's
2: what is it it's a very unique combination isn't it it's like and i love those sort of flavors like like coca-cola or pepsi-cola or any color um or tizer used to be a drink that we had in the uk it's
0: like Um, yeah bubble gummy orange yeah um
2: red bull yeah so those fantasy flavors (laughs) that uh Mm. are not of anything specific they're a lot of fun
0: how how does that because we like the taste of nature in a way don't we how do these things work and some things don't
2: yeah good question um that's, that's some magic. There's some magic there. I don't know what it is. When, when I first joined IFF, one of the things I wanted to do was, was get the flavorists there thinking a little bit more create, creatively. And I, I ran a competition for all the flavorists in the location that I was based in to come up with a, a flavour that was not anything. So it was no. not recognisable. Um, so they could cool. use any, any ingredients, but it was just not recognisable. Yeah, and and then we had a, like a sensory, um, a consumer preference test to to see who won. Basically, mm. so there was a competition to do that, and that was a lot of fun because you you deliberately looking for ingredients that maybe you'd never thought of trying before because they don't exist together, yeah. and, and you're looking deliberately to make something that doesn't exist. When you taste cola, you don't really think of the ingredients. You don't think of lime. You don't think of cinnamon no. necessarily. You, but but altogether it's something unique and very recognisable.
1: Everyone asks Stephen <laughs> your final question.
2: Being a flavorist, <laughs> what
0: what is that like? Because if you don't have the, you know the 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 imagery of a color for like it, it must be certain colors, but definitely images can impact how you perceive a flavor. How how is mm. that for you? Because you might have your own idea what green's like. So it's all subjective in that
2: sense totally yeah i mean we know more and more don't we about cross modality now and um i have no idea it work
0: in application no
2: no you're right beverage Um,
0: application now
2: and whenever whenever i compound a flavor and we we have to design a flavor and and we're commercializing it one of the things we have to make a note of is its color because it's part of the specification and i can't do that on my own i have to Mm. go and ask another flavorist (laughs) ritter
1: do you have a question?
2: My question is, um, what was the most difficult you, flavor you have worked on? And um, did you achieve a result which uh, you, were, yeah, you were satisfied up with in the end? Mm. The most difficult flavor I've ever worked on is bacon. I don't know whether you, how well you know bacon flavors in general, but they, are, <clears throat> they have been typically very dependent on a particular type of note described by different people in different ways but one of them is burpee bacon because it has an unfortunate effect so for many many years bacon flavors were very dependent on that note and it's it's generated by a, a very classic reaction what i was tasked to do was to make a more authentic bacon that wasn't dependent on that note and really tasted like properly cooked fresh bacon that was really hard and i I never did it um i and i've still never tasted a good bacon flavor one that doesn't taste of that of that note you know there are flavors now that are maybe more like ham or -hmm. that they're not they don't really come across as bacon but when they're when bacon is the hero flavor where it's the lead the lead flavor note it almost always has that character, and I still have never tasted a genuinely authentic bacon. Maria do you have a question
0: How would you describe yourself as flavorist um,
2: yeah I, I, I always wanted I wanted to be what we used to classically call a creative flavorist okay so a creative top note flavorist um, I think I did probably okay but I, I think there are better creative flavorists than I was I, I think I, i'm, a, I'm I'm all right at that but I'm not maybe the best. Um, I think I'm I probably am more like a have more of a technical um, bring a technical expertise to my flavors more so than the the genuine um, the 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 Leonardo da Vinci sort of aspect or the I don't know uh, you know really genuinely artistic uh, character. I'd, I'd love to have been that and I And I think I'm probably not as good as I would love to have been, put it that way. What I what I do do is have, a, a, I think, a strong technical understanding of flavors. And that's why I mentioned that I'm very interested in flavor release and and how flavoring molecules interact with the matrix that they're in. And, And knowing that and understanding that, I think, gives you a real advantage when you're designing your flavor to work in a food and And I think I've had a you know, bit of an advantage there in that uh, having that technical knowledge has helped me design flavorings to work well and <clears throat> and And also that kind of brings me on a bit to what I do a lot now, which is delivery systems was always interested aspect of getting a flavor to work well in different different environments and using technologies to do that. You know, over the years, I've I've got more and more involved in designing and working with flavour delivery technologies, and in fact, that's now pretty much what I do full time. I lead the innovation side of uh, flavour delivery for IFF globally, so it's something that I've fairly recently opted to do to focus on. Have you ever regretted for something you have submitted? Yes, and 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 I kind of I'm sorry to say that's a feeling you have to get used to. Mm-hmm. As a flavorist, because uh, if you ever felt like you got it 100 percent right, you've probably you've missed something because mm-hmm. um, you can always do it better. And most of the time, you just don't have the chance to do it as well as you want anyway, because because of the times time mm. pressure.
0: Is it the kind of job where you get up, you just shoot up in the middle of the night, and you say, "I wish I used that compound" or, or something? Yep. Is it one yep. of these things? Yeah, oh, so yeah, I have to
2: switch off. For sure, yeah. I wake up in the morning. <laughs> With a with a little bit of inspiration. I mean, my personal time is when I'm in the shower. That's when I have my time <laughs> <my> moments.
1: <laughs> when I have my personal moments when in the shower. Moments,
2: it's in the shower, yeah. I, those boring, repetitive. Your mind drifts off. That's the time when when I have my. I'm sure. I'm sure it's not unusual. I'm sure everybody's like that. But I have noticed that you, you know those are the times when I actually do have some quite, quite good ideas when I'm there.
0: On your guide on you had mentioned earlier, you threw out a number of uh, for senior flavors for Mm. 10 years. But in reality, looking back now over time um, and based on your experience for any new people, I know when people start in the industry, they're always so um, aggressive to get to a certain level. And it's very hard to explain to people you actually have to put in the time to get there. So what's your rule of thumb for a time frame? for someone to become flavorist senior flavorist master flavorist all of those stages
2: obviously depends on on the route you're taking and what you're exposed to at that time what kind of accelerative um, programs you go through i don't know about let's say lower levels you know from trainee to to flavorist <clears throat> you're going to you're going to need at least 3 years just just to actually understand what a flavor is so trainee Trainees for a minimum of three years, then different companies have their own name for what comes next, but it's essentially a kind of uh, apprentice or something. I don't know, but but you you'd be you'd be working on projects, but you you may you wouldn't be doing it under totally your own your own um, initiative. <clears throat> then. Probably about another three years before you're a flavorist so, so i don't know six years in total before you you'd be considered to be a, a flavorist and then I still think the 10 years for a senior is probably about right I mean that varies from company to company it, it, if you're 10 years and you're properly solidly working on flavors all the time then 10 years is probably reasonable um, and then beyond that it just depends on what you what you're working on and yeah I wouldn't want to put a number on that
1: it kind of relates to how valuable you would be to the company as well i guess so what you're exposed to and what you're good at
2: yeah 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 i think i think obviously every company is going to going to see it differently um but the word senior flavorist had a sort of the term had a um has always had a kind of established i guess feeling at least at least from the industry that i was exposed to around about uh, 10 years minimum put it that way 10 years minimum and Mm -hmm. then it could could be fifteen. But Somewhere between yeah. that, depending on how things went.
1: There's lots of junior flavorists in the, in the audience just really, really hoping that they can learn as much as they can.
2: From my perspective, that's the great thing. You know, I love to hear that there's, there's junior flavors actually happening because um, not so long ago, the industry had underinvested in future talent. I'm aware in the last maybe six or seven years, I think the industry has got wise to that and has started to invest a lot more. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Trevor.
1: No, thanks, Stephen. That was so, so good. Also, it's really cool to, like, hear about other stuff, the things that we can ask you questions that maybe Mm. we've thought about but never uh, had the opportunity to ask. Tangents that we all go through is quite cool. I think it's really good. Um, And talking about different stuff, really awesome. It's like really picking someone's brain, but also Mm. finding out um, kind of the the course of, of your career and stuff. Epic, yeah, Very cool. yeah, and
2: and you'll look back on your own in thirty years' time, forty years' time, and you'll have those sort of feelings as well. But at the time, you have no idea it's happening. It's weird. Yeah. It's weird, and and it happens really quickly as well. You you blink, and suddenly you're one of the senior guys, and you look back and you think, wow, that was amazing. And people yeah. are coming to you and asking you how to do things. But that change just happens suddenly. It's really strange. You know, I still feel like I did in many ways to when I first started at PFW like I don't I don't really um like I I don't know everything and that's I suppose that's important but I certainly feel that way that I I certainly don't know everything
1: did you ever have imposter syndrome
2: all the time yeah 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 yeah. and and you know you asked one of the questions on your thing I think was what would you say to a younger you or what would what would you and
0: in reflection
2: yeah, and, and I, I do think that what I would what I've learned is that to, to be tolerant of of the things that I'm not very good at. And, no. and and just accept it and not not stress about it because there are a few things that I have some aptitude for and I'm I'm happy with that and pleased about that. There's a lot of things that I'm crap at. And but it doesn't matter that you can still be okay with that and and don't have to be stressy stressed about it it's it's fine so but when you're when you're younger and you don't really know that so well it just feels like you're failing all the time and you get imposter syndrome and and
1: yeah like insurmountable challenges and stuff like that because you feel like yeah and you feel like everybody else
2: can do it better than you
1: it's so cool having a job that you think is the best job in the world
2: yeah yeah but at the same time one that is actually fairly trivial you know, we're not yeah. we are not making a cure for cancer or COVID or whatever. We are we make we're just making flavors. So we have a lot of fun doing something. Which if we get wrong, nobody dies.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. but well, we do Aiden's, make lives yeah. better.
2: <laughs> Apart from Aiden's music, but no, but I, I do think that's important to have that sense of perspective because when when somebody's screaming at you, uh, you know, sales guy is screaming at you to get get a project out. To have that sense of perspective. And it helps you get, it helps you see that, you know, it's not worth that stress, man. It, it just mm-hmm. it, it is not the end of the world if you miss a deadline for a flavor. Yeah. And, um, and I think that can help you just be a bit more relaxed about life. And enjoy it more.
0: The disadvantage of the small companies buying up the big companies as a flavor is the briefs get bigger and bigger. The pressure gets bigger and bigger.
2: Yeah, but only in your mind. It's yeah, not. Yeah. It's mm. not, real. not real. It's it's pre- it's pressure because they're telling you it's pressure, and and yeah. you don't have to be a victim to that. And I think that's what I've learned as I've got older. Really cool. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Stephen, for being with us, ensuring so much of yourself here today. This has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavors with BSF Flavor Talks. I hope that you've seen there is much more behind flavors. It is hard to acquire that right level of experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour science, stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review. I'm Aidan
1: and I'm Trevor. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.